it's recovery, right? It's human recovery. This is not wasting time. This is a really valuable tool. And if you make it the first pillar to try and optimize your recovery and take it not as serious as everything else, but, you know, at least raise your knowledge, for heaven's sake, is that your hydration plan will benefit. Your nutritional plan will benefit. Your exercise will benefit. Your relationships with others will benefit. Your productivity will benefit. Welcome to this week's podcast with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. Today, we dive into the importance of sleep for recovery and performance. In the last few years, sleep has really become a cornerstone pillar Poor sleep has been linked to many underlying health conditions, such as a rise in cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and even Alzheimer's disease. A study last week involving mice showed how protein plaques may build up in the brain if sleep is disturbed, because this affects cells that normally destroy them. And this is worrying data because before COVID, dementia was the leading cause of death in the UK. So today we really take a deep dive into sleep, how to know what the sleep stages are, how to know what our chronotype is, is napping good for us, is napping bad for us. And we also explore sleep trackers. You might have heard of the Aura Ring or you might have an Apple Watch, but how accurate are these? Today's podcast is a long one, but it's one that is full of so much insight and knowledge and facts. So I really hope you find it interesting. Do try and stay with the whole hour and a half episode because honestly, it gets so interesting the more that you get into this episode. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, who have turned astoundingly nutrient-dense ingredients and aptogenic herbs into delicious mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is organic, fair trade coffee with lion's mane mushroom for productivity and chagra mushroom for immune support. Taking us to Fungi Town, I absolutely love using an alternative such as Four Sigmatic instead of coffee. It really is easy on my gut and it doesn't leave me with that awful jittery feeling or that midday crash that sometimes people can experience with coffee. All Four Sigmatic products are organic and plant-based. Plus, every single batch is a third-party lab-tested to ensure its purity and safety, so you know you're getting the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. Now, you're probably thinking, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? I can guarantee you it tastes just like coffee that you love. It brews dark, and it's nutty and tastes delicious. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash be well. That is www.foursigmatic.com forward slash be well and fuel your mornings with some delicious mushroom coffee. A quick shout out before we get into this episode of our workshop coming your way. The Be Well are really excited to host a very important workshop with tickets starting at only £10. 
The workshop will focus on understanding our anxiety triggers and what we can do about them. At the moment, there are so many provoking anxiety triggers, especially the state of the world that we're living in right now. It can feel very unsettling and without understanding how to manage anxiety, it can manifest into more of a severe mental health problem. We want you to help take control of your anxiety and manage it. So come to this workshop. Tickets are available online and they are only £10. Head to bewellcollective.co.uk to buy yours. And we really hope we can see you there. Nick Littlehills is recognised as the world's first and leading elite sports sleep coach and regarded as a leading human recovery innovator. He has over 35 years experience within the sleep and sleeping product industry and over 24 years dedicated to elite sport. His unique, passionate and proven approach is endorsed by leading sports science professionals, managers, coaches, organisations in sports and now business, health and education worldwide. Nick is the author of the number one bestseller book called Sleep, which sets out to debunk the common sleep myths as well as educating the reader on his revolutionary R90 human recovery technique. Nick, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. My pleasure, Sarah, and I'm very well today. It's a, a gloomy day in Britain, but a very happy day, I think. Good. I'm so pleased that you're well. And I'm interested to delve deep into the gloominess of today because from speaking to you recently, you've mentioned about how light can really affect our sleep cycles. So before we delve into how we can really optimise our sleep in this podcast, could you first give all of the listeners today a brief introduction into how you came into the world of sleep? Well, I'll try and keep that as simple as I possibly can. I've been asked that question a hell of a lot over the last few years, but it's just a journey like lots of people travel along where you bump into things, a little bit of fate, a little bit of this. But I was just a massive fan of sport when I was a teenager, above and beyond my studies, I have to say. But that was way back in the late 70s, 80s. The world was a completely different place. And, you know, I wanted to be a, you know, celebrity sports star. I did a little bit of golf. That didn't work out for me. Got into my mid-20s, decided to get married to my childhood sweetheart. That pathway made me join the furniture industry. That made me join a company that was in the sleep industry, a big company. I started off as a lowly representative, driving around selling bedding products to people. I got fast-tracked to their international sales and marketing director at 32. It was a very big brand. Anybody who's over the age of, I don't know, 50 or 40 might remember the name Slumberland. And I was traveling around the world, you know, observing sleeping habits all over the place, about sleeping products and sleeping and how important it was, working with some clinical professors in sleep and everything else. And then there was such a lot missing in those days without phones and social media. But I collaborated with a few colleagues in the industry to set up the very first UK Sleep Council, which I was the chairman of. I suppose a little bit of midlife crisis, which happens to everybody in their 40s, that sort of journey between growing up and then moving towards, you know, the latter end of your life. And I just sort of decided that, you know, everybody took sleep for granted not a performance criteria. It wasn't really a health pillar. They just tagged it on to the end of something. I just thought, you know, I need to go off and do something better with my life. 
So I decided to leave the company. I was a director, so I had a 12-month you know, period of time to move away from that particular position. And during that time, I could have a bit of fun. My UK office was based in Oldham, Manchester in the UK. There happened to be a local football club called Oldham Athletic. They knocked on my door and asked me to sponsor the shirts. So I thought, well, that's a bit weird for the company I work for, but lots of people in the workforce supported the club, so maybe they'd like the company's name on the front of a football shirt. That involved me with local football because I signed the cheque. I wasn't aware at the time that it was a sort of breeding ground for footballers for a club called Manchester United just down the road. So I happened to bump into them and bump into the manager, Alex Ferguson. I suppose I'd always had a particular sort of DNA strand to me that was, you know, if things didn't make sense or there wasn't a sort of definitive approach, it sort of goes back to my father, I think, who was a an engineer, an innovator in his own time. But it was sort of like, well, maybe there's another way of doing it. So I'd listened to lots of stuff and lots of contradictions, lots of myths, misunderstandings. So I think that all collected inside of me. So when I started talking to the world of football, they're all sleepers, like we all are, but it was a conversation more about performance and about recovery. So that dialogue started. My company wasn't even interested in what I was doing. I was working with a team called Manchester United, who at that period of time, unbeknown to me, suddenly went on and won what was known as one of the best treble winning sides ever, the class of 92 and Mr. Beckham and everybody else. And so there was a massive focus on what they were doing. So, you know, the sleep bit, people going, well, there's a guy going in and talking to him about sleep and recovery rooms and napping and stuff like that. And they also played for the England squad. So there was a spectacled French manager who came along at the same time called Arsene Wenger. And he joined Arsenal and he had a very different approach, almost, you know, maverick approach to athletes and football and training and disciplines. And and so between the national squad, the physio of the national squad was a guy called Gary Lewin. He became interested in what the guys were talking about. He invited me into Arsenal Football Club to talk to what was a much multicultural team than Manchester United. We had players from all over the world. And you know, suddenly I woke up one morning and the press had just gone, you know, these pampered footballers have got a sleep coach. What on earth is that all about? And so that's really where the title came from. That's really where my journey started. I had to, you know, make it up, Sarah, what it is a sleep coach in elite sport. You know, over the last two decades, you know, I've been working with British Cycling and Team Sky and national squads Olympic squads all over the world, whatever gender, whatever age group, whatever demographic, whatever sport. And it's been a journey of constant pressure because nobody really knew what I did. And up until sort of recent years, sleep was always shoved away in the back of our minds, taken for granted. But now we're sort of on a very sort of step-by-step process of going, wow, it is actually important. Wow, why haven't we had education? Wow, why don't we know more about this? Wow, we start to feel the real impacts of pushing the boundaries too far and getting reminded that we're just human beings with brains and bodily functions. So that's really been my journey of hidden away in elite sports, making things up, trying to find a more definitive approach, 
and it pretty much applies to every human on this planet. It's not specific to elite sports, and that's what brings us here today. That's a fascinating story and so interesting that the main pull for you into sleep was the understanding around performance and recovery. With sleep coming to the forefront of many of our conversations, I thought it might be really good to start with a few facts around currently our sleep habits in the UK. So from Insomnia UK in 2021, they found that 36% of UK adults struggle to get to sleep at least once a week. Almost one in five have trouble falling asleep every single night. And nearly half of the UK have trouble falling asleep at least once a month. Many of us are struggling with our sleep. And I'm sure many people listening to this have had sleepless nights where they've tossed and they've turned and they've woken up feeling really groggy and maybe underperformed that day. So when we start understanding sleep, how can we be looking at our sleep cycles? Is it true that there's four sleep stages to our sleep cycle? In principle, there's four main stages. You could look at it as five or six. It just depends how clinically you look at the process of sleeping from a clinical aspect. But yeah, four to five stages appear while you're in a sleep state. You're not in control of those stages. So the trick is to do things throughout your day to reveal them like your brain would want them to be revealed. Can we talk about the different sleep stages and how we can promote and increase those different areas of sleep, such as REM sleep and deep sleep? Because it's quite interesting that one person may be getting good quality deep sleep, but poor REM sleep. I love these questions because I only get asked these questions probably in the last five or six years. You know, up until that point, people were just unaware of these things and no education, no schooling, no parents passing things on. So it's really interesting to start having these conversations with people as they develop their knowledge. It's all about rhythms, patterns and harmony. We are human beings with brains and bodily functions. We are, like everything else on this planet, synchronized with what's called the circadian rhythms of our day, which is basically just the sun rolling around our planet. It has no relationship with us as human beings, it just starts and finishes every 24 hours. And we all live off that process. But humans are very good at, at creating stuff. And we've been wandering away from these natural rhythms, step by step, decade by decade, century by century. And it's that the fundamental thing is that when you present yourself to sleep and your brain takes over, what it's trying to do is... You know, what have you been eating today? What have you been drinking today? What sort of exercise have you had? What sort of things, good and, you know, negative and positive have been going on? How much light have you been exposed to? All the factors go on in the very variables of those processes. It sort of takes you into sort of light sleep stages. And it's a bit like standing at the top of the stairs there. And at the bottom of the stairs is this wonderful REM deep sleep stuff. But unfortunately, that area of any stage of is when you're at your most vulnerable, right? So I could come into your bedroom, play with your hair in deep sleep, and you wouldn't know I was there. In light sleep, I wouldn't get through your front door. So the brain starts to wander down the stairs, and you enter these light sleep stages depending on all sorts of other factors. But in principle, that's the answer to your question. Then 
the brain is ticking boxes. You know, is the bladder filling up? Are you still digesting food? Are we still processing information, filing it away and downloading it? Then there's things like sleeping partners and noise and where you're actually sleeping and all that sort of stuff. So it wanders through this process of trying to find the moment where it can move you into those stages like REM and non-REM, which is rapid eye movement, dreaming state, and things like that, and the deep sleep stage. The deeper sleep stages, as I pointed out, you're very vulnerable. So once you move out of your formative growth years where the brain is in control of this process, all parents know this, is you start to move into this sort of monophasic area of just sleeping at night. So the brain is trying to find a way to wander through these stages Within also a rhythm, which is when you actually look back, the deeper sleep stages are only revealed because we put a clock on it between sort of 10 o'clock at night and around 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning. And so within that period, the brain is trying to, while you're in a sleep stage, reveal that deep sleep stuff. Once you start wandering past sort of 2 or 3 o'clock, The sun is already on its way back, waking the planet up. So those are very much dominated by lighter sleep stages. You know, we never had trackers before. And even if we did have trackers, we didn't measure sleep. But those are the sort of things that come out, the new trackers, they start to give you information about why aren't I getting any deep sleep in this particular period and that sort of stuff. So it's very much about everything you do from the point of wake, your journey with your brain, when you do get to a point when you want to you know, go into a sleep state, it doesn't matter how many hours you've allocated. You can allocate 12 or 8 or 7 or 6. Once you present yourself to sleep and the brain takes over, you're now out of control and your brain is going to try to achieve a nice balanced approach to these various stages. And the deep sleep stage is only ever going to be around 20% of any period you allocate to sleep, whether that's 10 hours, 9 hours, 6 hours. So you're always trying to make sure that you are in a rhythm with that 24 hours, that if you do want to get that human recovery, then you've got to present yourself to that period, to those rhythms at the right times for your brain to be able to do it. If you push the boundaries too hard from the moment you wake up in the morning, you're going to ask your brain to constantly adapt, constantly adjust, and so it makes it more difficult even while you're in a sleep state. So, you know, very quickly to end that answer is that you do see there are differences between male and female in all sorts of areas, body temperature and things like that. So you very much have to be aware that females are far more sensitive, they're more aware because of the nurturing tendency, whether they like children or not. So they can get stuck very easily in light sleep stages because the brain's not happy to take you down into a vulnerable state because it needs to remain alert for a noise, for a sound. And that's just harping back to when we spent most of our time outside, you know? And there's a fear factor of going into a deep sleep phase when there's things that could go definitely wrong for you (laughs) in that space. It's kind of not thinking about, oh, I need to get my eight hours if I only get six. It's about having some sort of rhythm to your every day that allows the brain to try and reveal 
these stages in the sort of percentages that it wants to at the times it wants to. And that's where your journey starts at the point of wake. When looking at this, would you then say that deep sleep is more restorative and REM sleep is more about the processing, creativity and our memory? It's interesting that you said that deep sleep should only be around 20% of our full sleep cycle. Well, it's not necessarily it should be. We clearly know that in any particular period, wandering into that particular phase, like I say, you're most vulnerable at it. So there's a lot of things that have to fall into place for us to go into that particular area. In all the sort of research we can look at at the end of our fingertips, and what you pointed out is exactly right. You know, people see the processing areas of REM and non-REM, the deeper sleep stages can be more rejuvenative and everything else. There's still a little caveat on the bottom of every single piece of research we see is that we're still learning. You know, we're using technology, we're using our knowledge, ever-increasing steps that we make in those areas. We're learning more about this area than we ever used to. We certainly stopped taking it for granted, but we still haven't got that apart from my approach, of course, but we still haven't quite got that sort of definitive approach to how humans optimize this very natural recovery process. So I think there's always a danger that we concentrate on the fear factors of it. You know, it's a multi-trillion dollar black hole of health that's not been investigated that much. So there's a lot of emphasis in that particular area. But I think us all as humans want to just just take this step by step, not not slowly, but just be careful about, you know, jumping into certain areas, even all the trackers that are out there. And there'll be another 20 tomorrow and another 30 the next week, and they'll all get better or prove this or prove that. But there's already a medical term called orthosomnia for the increased anxiety and stress that the information creates for you because you don't quite know what to do with it. Because there's a marked difference between, you know, in sport, if we can't track it, we don't do it, right? So it's kind of like when you're mentally and physically active and you're tracking that, like heart rate variability, things like that, and recovery rate, you can sort of do something and see the results of it and develop a training program or a routine or something like that. But the data that you're getting is something where you're out of control of. You're asleep. Your brain's in control. So we very much focus more on the data through the day, how that's going to tell you what's likely to happen tonight, rather than worrying about what are the results of that when you wake up in the morning. And then, because it's not a performance factor, may never be, but you can't say that in this world. But Is it ever going to stop somebody going to work? Is it ever going to stop a pilot flying a plane? Is it ever going to stop a nurse or a surgeon or a parent, a mother or a husband taking kids to school? Is it ever going to be that factor where you wake up in the morning and the data on your tracker says you can't work today or you can't do this today? We're a long, long way, probably far shorter than I would ever think, but we're a long, long way where that data is actually going to have that sort of significance on what you do. It is interesting, actually, because there is a lot of tracking apps that I would like to talk to you about, such as the Aura Ring, Apple Watch, 
Garmin, or even apps which you download, which can track your sleep. But if you haven't used these tracking app devices, how can one understand if they are getting a good quality sleep or enough sleep? Because as you mentioned, it is quality over quantity. It's because there's, you know, I don't want to sound anti-tracker in the slightest because we had some sleep trackers, well, two decades ago that was good as being inside a clinic, you know, but those products disappeared. The trackers today use the technology, accelerometers, heart rate, body temperature, you know, all of those factors to sort of collectively bring that together that sort of suggests where you are in that sleep state, you know? So if your arms are moving around quite a bit and you've got something on your wrist or wherever the app is on your phone by the side of your bed and things like that. So it's kind of a bit of a guide. It's better than nothing, but it is a bit of a guide, right? It's sort of guessing in some respects. And you can take this data and put it into clinical environments and it it stacks up quite well. But the only other type of data that we've got is people in clinical environments you know where they get wired up with polysomniographs they're in a completely strange environment almost like a hospital and it's sort of like you're collecting data of when i'm in the most unfamiliar place with all this sort of stuff going on how does that really reflect what's going on so a lot of the clinical data is all about disorders you know real specific clinical disorders what we don't have is a sort of population tracking sleep with good technology over a long period of time. That could be five years. A long period of time, we're collecting that data, and now we can really start to provide good advice back to people that if these things are happening in your day, that's the likelihood of that result. And if you want to increase your deep sleep, these are things that you actually can do, right? But That journey is very much in the early influences of that whole process of collecting that data because everybody has things going on in their life that are variables. There's no sort of specifics. But we can all go on a treadmill and we can all run at a certain pace for 30 minutes. We can track heart rate. We can relate that back to lots of many years of data that we know about so any personal trainer you or yourself you can actually go i ran like this at that pace for this long and this is what happened maybe we can adjust that maybe we can adjust that but we're a long way off that with this particular process when it comes to sleep so it's difficult one to answer positively because i know i know people want to track this area i know they want that information they really want to sort of go wow but I always have to sort of put it back to them that pretty much every single client I work with would like me to come up with a technique when they only have to sleep for 20 minutes a day so they can do more you know they can train more they can really live their life longer you know so it is always this challenge of whether this data that we're collecting is it to improve and optimize our recovery to help us as human beings Or is it just another intrusive data collecting thing that's about to try and drive us into, can we do it quicker, faster, and stop wasting valuable time doing it without benefits? And I think that's where the sort of conflict of the debate is at this moment in time. 
It is really important to say that everyone is individual and it would be really interesting to hear your insights surrounding genetics because there's this common messaging around the eight hour sleep window a night. Many of us can create fear for oneself if we aren't fitting into these eight hours. On the other hand, there are people such as Donald Trump and Margaret Thatcher who have spoken openly around only needing four to five hours sleep a night. So is there anything around our genetics here which actually determines how much sleep one actually needs? It's a fascinating question, isn't it? And like I said, in in my particular journey, I was always interested talking to professors of sleep and, you know, did they have a definitive approach to create all these things we're talking about? And they just went, no, you know, I just approach sleep just like you do, Nick, you know, (laughs) and all the various variables of it. You know, one minute you're on your own as a single person, then maybe you get a sleeping partner and things change. Then maybe a child comes along and they're waking you up in the middle of the night because they're sleeping polyphasically and you're trying to sleep monophasically. How does that apply to a nurse or a surgeon, night shift workers, multi-shift workers, frontline workers? They just ignore it because there's no opportunity for them to focus on an eight-hour block. And then... Up until the electric light bulb came along, right? which is not that long ago. You know, it's Victorian times in our world. We never used to try and sleep in one block. So our eight hours, which is 30-odd percent of 24, we need to be optimizing human recovery in around 30-odd percent of every 24, depending on our behavior. But that's about where it is. So that's eight hours out of 24. But those eight hours worth of recovery or more, as you're growing up, was always developed through that 24 hours. That's the polyphasic term. So it's kind of not that long ago that we'd never tried to just sleep in one block and get all eight hours in one block. We would gather our recovery throughout that 24-hour period. So you kind of like, okay, then, well, that's how Margaret Thatcher did it. Or that how is, I won't even mention his name. Well, I shouldn't have mentioned Margaret Thatcher either. And suddenly I'm working with elite athletes and, you know, swimmers are swimming at four o'clock in the morning and performing at 11 o'clock at night on the other side of the world and traveling and planes and hotels and, and all sorts of things. And paradigm shifting stuff was coming in from the late 90s to where we are now with phones and social media and all sorts of stuff. And it's like, whoa, you know, now we're drinking two liters of water a day where we didn't even think about water before. You know, there was all these pretty paradigm shifting things happening from the late 90s to where we are now. And it was just, you just start to realize that you can't keep telling people that if they don't get eight hours, you know, they're going to die. Or in later life, there's going to be all sorts of complications. You've got to find some way that they feel confident and comfortable with their optimizing their recovery with something that they're out of control with. So how do you shift that back and say, I'm not interested in how many hours you allocate to sleep. I'm interested in the quality of your sleep, and I'm interested in how you approach sleep. So everything you do from the point of wake throughout your day, have you got some rhythm? Have you got some balance? Have you got some patterns? Because unless those things are in place, it doesn't matter how many hours you allocate to it. Your brain's not going to reveal it. There are certain people, human beings, they are, you know, 
maybe a little further along the Darwinian pathway, depending on where you come from and what you believe, right? They seem to be like Usain Bolt can run faster than anybody else. Or there is a person who can live off three hours. There's four girls who've just rowed a boat across, you know, a big old piece of water, broken a record, and they're all in a little boat together. It doesn't take too much imagination that they are very close in every aspect. And they're getting like two or three hours for a period of time. You know, as I started to work with extreme athletes, you know, single-handed round-the-world sailors on a boat for three months, and they could only sleep if certain criteria was there. I was a parent. You know, it's just like, wow. What I've got to do is if I'm constantly worrying about if I don't get my eight hours, allocate eight hours, and when I go into sleep, I don't get the quality from it. And if I wake up in the middle of the night at two o'clock and I'm worrying about that because I can't get back to sleep, I wake up early. I don't feel great. I seem to be in a sleep state, you know, all of those eight hours, nine hours, but I don't feel refreshed. And I think that's the thing about the trackers sometimes. You'll, you'll wake up and the tracker says this, but you feel like that. And you're not quite sure why the contradiction is there. So it's not necessarily about myths. It's actually these people who you mentioned and many others who are not so famous and do great jobs, long-haul pilots, you know, surgeons working through the night, transplant surgeons on pages, having to react at any particular moment, parents, as I say. You know, what they're doing is they are adopting a polyphasic approach. Whether they're planning it that way is another argument. Maybe it's just the pressures of what they're doing. But you can actually recover in a polyphasic way. It's not unnatural to us. It's just you have to find your own way to do it. And I think those people, and there's many more, you know, the list is endless, including myself, who a long time ago just decided to stop worrying about sleep. It was pointless. And just concentrate on doing all these little things that I know helps my brain. So when I do enter a sleep state, it takes over and gives me the best it possibly can. And I just keep cracking on because the more I have the rhythm to my day, the more chance it's got to reveal that, never mind how many hours it is. So that's probably the best I can do. And this brings me really nicely onto how one should think about napping. Because you speak a lot around polyphasic sleep, and there can be a lot of stigma attached to napping, as one can be thought of as being very lazy, and others may worry that it could affect their quality of sleep in the evening. And one fact I really like here, which is around Einstein to make sure that he didn't hit that heavy sleep state. Apparently, he used to sleep with a spoon in his hand and a metal plate directly underneath him. And then when he started to drop off into that deeper sleep state, the spoon would hit the metal plate and directly wake him up. So when we are looking at napping, is it beneficial for us? Because Einstein obviously thought that it did with these tricks that he implemented. But if it is beneficial for us, how should one also approach napping? I think in the very early stages of trying to talk to very young male footballers about sleep is immediately you need to change the language. You're not changing the facts, but you're changing the language. So as long as you 
mentioned the word sleep. Our perception of it is something we do at night. We don't have much control over it. And most of the time, it doesn't really work well for us. And there's no education in the area to sort of, you know, validate that. So try to look at it in a different way, like human recovery. It's everything you're doing, there's mental and physical activities. So you've got to have mental and physical recovery activities to balance the process off. So let's start with that. Then the next bit was, well, yes, snoozers for losers. What is a nap? It's granddad in front of the fire, or it's somebody falling asleep in a meeting. It's trying to catch up on days off, the most important days of your life. You work and you get days off. And when you get days off, you want to maximize every hour of it. You don't want to spend it like sleeping in later or trying to go to bed earlier, trying to catch up. You need to find out how to stop that process. So napping was always considered to be negative, and it is, because napping is a consequence of an undefined approach. If you have a defined approach, you think of these periods as controlled recovery periods. And I'm sure we'll come on to it. And these are your moments. These are little opportunities where you help your brain to recover. And it's not about sleep, right? We can fall asleep behind the wheel of a car on a motorway, right? That's crazy. We can get onto a train and even with all our laptops and everything else, suddenly nod off, right? We can be in a meeting midday, the graveyard slot after lunch. And we can sort of like leave the room. We're still there, but we've left the room a little bit consciously. Meditation, mindfulness, whatever. Suddenly we just go, oh, hang on a minute. You know, the boss is doing all this sales pitch, but I'd actually just drifted off somewhere. When you shift it, is that napping is a consequence of an undefined approach. It's your brain trying to catch up. It's a brain when you stop doing certain things, like, you know, being with friends, occupation, you've got everything to do and everything else. And any moment that you sort of stop watching the TV or something on a train, your brain will just go, great, I'm going to put you to sleep, irrespective if you're in a very dangerous or vulnerable position. So you switch that around and go, right. If I look at a polyphasic approach, if I already know that human beings slept in a biphasic, triphasic, multiphasic way up until electric light, it's about your relationship with the sun rolling around the planet. Right then, so midday, what do they call that? Siesta. Well, it's not actually going to sleep. It's actually creating some space in a very important part of that 24 hours to enter into some sort of recovery, right? And that could be having a long lunch with some friends. That could be doing some exercise. That could be doing all sorts of things, you know, going shopping. It's creating a little bit of space in that 24 hours. There's another one late afternoon. So you sort of look at that and go, 30% of the 24 is eight. 30 odd percent, you know, 33 if you want to look at it carefully, is, is eight hours. Eight hours spread across my 24 could look a little bit differently, but how do I do that? You know, I always looked inside the clinical world that they would look at, you know, when you were talking about the stages in cycles, because they would look at you, Sarah, in a sleep state, and they'd look at the data being collected over a 60 minute period, and then the next 60 minute period, right? But some, would look at 90 minutes, right? And 
the 90 minutes seemed to make more sense as far as the rhythm of going through those stages rather than 60. So it seemed to create a better flow of data if you looked at it every 90 minutes. So inside of 90 minutes, 30-odd percent of that is 30 minutes. And 30 minutes, if you've ever looked at napping or anything like that, or pilots try to get 26 minutes. So the sort of period about napping is a 30-minute slot. It's giving the brain the opportunity to microsleep you or just create some recovery without actually falling into a sleep state. But it's also not drifting off, which is the spoon scenario, is not drifting off into a full 90-minute cycle at the wrong point in those 24 hours. So it kind of shifts to being a polyphasic approach, sleeping in cycles, getting some rhythm to your day and knowing that if you want to if you want to be successful be as productive as you possibly can protect yourself from all the various things that can come along your way which are out of your control so you can manage those good moments and manage those bad moments instead of them be impacting on you too much and that's all about you and your brain on a recovery journey from the point that you wake up in the morning and you know as well as that, you've got a, a lovely backdrop there that I can see with your garden and the light and everything. And even if we just turn around from looking at me and doing this podcast, we just turn around and look into the garden for minutes. The brain is now visualizing that, not this. It's creating little different emotions of calm, of de-stress, of life's not that bad. You're also exposing yourself to the light. It's a little bit of a process to just help your brain. Give it a little moment. Help it along my journey throughout my day. It's only a couple of minutes. Just look in a different direction or move in a different direction. But when we were looking at your question before about suddenly, you know, in my little journey, probably up until London 2012 Olympics and the years beyond that, nobody talking about sleep, nobody looking into it, nobody really, you know, wanting to change something in that particular, but things were going on in the background to change that sort of mindset. And I think suddenly we start going, wow, how do we optimize this? How do we do that? You know, and suddenly we start seeing sleep pods arriving in businesses. You know, if you want to have a nap, hang on a minute, the reason why that person wants to go into a sleep state is because they're recovery deprived and trying to catch that up inside a working environment is completely ridiculous. What you should be thinking is giving them recovery time, right? Looking at your everyday schedule that provides Sarah an opportunity for her to go and sit in the garden, for her to have some space. And then you see sleep napsercise classes in gyms. Go at lunchtime and lie on beds inside a gym like you were doing a flipping, you know, boxer-sized class or whatever it might be, spin class. And you just go, hang on a minute. People don't like sleeping with each other. What? Yeah, even the most madly in love couples as human beings, all the sex, all the security, all the spooning, absolutely great. But when you actually enter a sleep state, you're likely to turn away from your partner curl up in a little ball and go, I'll see you later, right? So it's kind of like, hang on a minute. 
sleeping inside a pod, trying to overcome. Have you actually talked to the people yet before you invest in these pods, before you do this, before you start creating these other things for your staff to do that's all supposed to be on the health and well-being journey to help everybody be more productive and happy, but you haven't even told them, and it's probably not your role to do it, but you haven't even told them about circadian rhythms, chronotypes, pre and post sleep, sleeping inside, polyphasic sleeping, and the fact that we actually don't like sleeping with other people. That's why that room has got dust in it now. This is really interesting, and we're going to explore chronotypes in just a second. But before I do, let's speak about the importance of natural light and actually stepping outside. So to give our listeners some context of where I'm actually recording this right now, I have a glass hallway with lots of light coming in. And I'm actually sat underneath it whilst I'm recording this. And you did ask me prior to our conversation to download a light meter app on my phone. And I have done it and I have been sharing it with my friends to look at the amount of light, aka lux light, which you call it, throughout the day. And although I am in this glass box, I would call it, when I merely step outside into the courtyard, the lux value on my light app increases dramatically. Can you explain why it's important that we do step outside to gain this natural daylight and why it's so important for our sleep cycles? Because I guess you would say this is one way that you can help optimise your sleep cycles throughout the day. You could always see that daylight has a blue energy light, blue light, as part of the spectrum. And that blue light is pretty much, you know, known by most as being the, the light that will principally enter your eyes, whether your eyelids are closed. That goes through to light receptors into a little gland called the pineal gland. And that blue light triggers that pineal gland to create the hormone serotonin. And serotonin doesn't make the brain do something. It tells the brain that it should be unsuppressing everything, right? And making you fully active in every single way, right? When that blue light's not there, this is sunrise, midday, sunset. You know, we're human beings wandering around outside as hunter and gatherers, right? So the sun disappears. So now we're in diminished light. That's firelight, gaslight, yellow light, red light. It's not blue light from the daylight. So then those light receptors tell the pineal gland to stop producing serotonin and produce melatonin. And melatonin tells the brain to do the opposite, to suppress everything down, right? So your brain is responding to its exposure to light. Too much blue light, and it's telling the brain to keep active. Too little diminished light, it's not being inactive. You now know, don't you, that it's like this little journey of step-by-step, isn't it? You have made conscious decisions to create an environment, lots of glass, bring the outside in, plenty of daylight, You know what it's like to be outside, whether it's exercise or not. It just feels great. Be outside. It's cool. You know, if you get stuck in an office for two or three hours and you just step outside, it doesn't take too long before you go, oh, that feels good. You know, whether it's fresh air or stuff. But there's a lot of research that said that this sort of light process happens a lot quicker than we previously imagined. So suddenly you're there and you just go, wow, that's just glass. All it is is glass. 
We're not talking about curtains. or That's just glass, and you're completely surrounded by daylight. But the difference between the other side of that glass and where you sit is just off the charts. Now, you don't really need to dive into the science of that, do you, sir? You just know, wow, there's something going on there. So I think that's why, you know, knowing you're very fit and healthy and progressive person, as soon as I started to hear coaches and parents saying to their kids, you know, shut your tech down because the blue light coming off your tech is really dangerous. I just went, hang on a minute. You haven't even had the conversation of how brilliant it is, how amazing it is if you have a balanced approach to using it. And then suddenly blue blocker glasses come along, which we use very effectively, but it shouldn't be used in isolation to keep using your technology, trying to protect yourself from something that's quite damaging. That's a whole negative pre-sleep routine beyond belief, isn't it? So... It's kind of like, well, let's try and start that conversation about life. Not make it up, but let's get into it. And suddenly, you know, just like you, you know, you're wandering around with technology, your device, with a camera, and suddenly you've got some relationship with lux and lumens and daylight and the power of it, 10,000, 30,000. You suddenly realize that in your bedroom it's like 10. Sat at your desk, it could be 200. On the tube, it could be this. And then suddenly that relationship comes with, it starts to bring it into, you know, sleep. As you know, within my book in the techniques, Sarah, not to pitch that, but it's a journey through seven key sleep recovery indicators. And it's that journey that you go through, building your knowledge, looking for those little 1% factors, looking for those little things that will aggregate up to help you optimize your recovery with british cycling and team sky back in 2008-9 running into 2012 olympics and very very successful what happened was i i sort of gave it you know a bit more of a process rather than me just doing it it's called the r90 technique which is recovery in 90 minute cycles the seven key sleep recovery indicators ksris it's a journey you can't just deep dive into number seven or number six because they'll just have a very mild impact on what you do and won't be sustainable so number one is circadian rhythms. Just tap it in your browser and get some knowledge of that. And number two is identifying your chronotype, which can be far more significant to you than you first imagined, including friends and everybody else. Then you've got sleeping in cycles. So chop your day up into 90-minute cycles, creating 16 stages through the four phases of the day, 24-7 rolling. There's nothing about Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's a rolling process. And pre and post, pre-sleep. Yeah, there's some key factors about pre-sleep. But in principle, it's post-sleep that's going to make a difference to your day. Whatever time you wake up, however you feel, start your day with rhythm and pattern and help your brain go into the next rolling process. So focusing on post-sleep rather than pre-sleep. Then you end up with this little sort of 16 stages, four phases, sort of consistent start to your day, thinking about CRPs, thinking about a polyphasic approach, you suddenly start and thinking about, you know, recovery is not always about being asleep. It's about a nice journey with your brain. And you end up with a little mental and physical activity and mental and physical recovery activity planner subconsciously in your head that you're always got these little things going on that it's not a waste of time. So you get to that point. 
And then you can get to number six, which is the environment that we sleep in. I coach people to sleep anywhere, anytime, on anything, in any place, up the side of mountains, on boats, crossing Atlantics, all sorts of stuff. Right? So we know as human beings, the population all over our planet, that we don't all have fancy bedrooms with air conditioning and blackout blinds and all sorts of things. So principally, when you go through number one to number five, you've now got the technique in your back pocket that means you can do this anywhere, right? Because that's what you have to do. And then when you choose somewhere to sleep, either outside or in a tent, in the mountains, in a hotel, or you choose you've got a home and you choose that room's going to be the bedroom, you're principally just making sure that that everything that's in that room is bringing the outside in. It's not all the cold and the danger and everything else, but it, you know, as human beings, we're far more familiar with the natural world and light and dark shifts. And anybody who likes going camping or doesn't, we all know that even we walk down and sit by the lake or by the river or on the bench in the garden, it doesn't take too long before we go, it's not that bad, is it? You know? And so it's kind of like if you're going to go into, that's where you're going to sleep. And if you're going into that place, you need these little things in place to enable you and your brain to sleep in that particular place, wherever it is. And sometimes we get far too focused on temperature and all sorts of things. You know, I'm coaching Ethiopian marathon runners, Kenyan marathon runners, you know, triathletes in minus 50 degrees. Hello, Beijing, Winter Olympic. You just go, hang on a minute. How do we sort of go, oh, it needs to be 18 to 19 degrees to optimize sleep. It's 50 degrees outside. <laughs> so it's kind of like when you get to that place, you start to focus on the key factors about any environment, wherever you are. It's about your approach before you even get to that place, which is key. That environment will not solve an undefined poor approach to taking your brain into a place. And number seven is just simple. It's products. From pajamas to eye masks to mattresses to pillows to linen to all sorts of things is that we suddenly get focused on, oh, this mattress is going to change how I sleep or this pillow is or this is going to. And it's just like, well, no, it won't. <laughs> These things are not designed to help you and your brain optimize those sleep stages, you know, like you've been talking about and asking me some very, you know, very good questions. They're not. They're just upholstered things, you know, and it's sort of go, oh, I need a new pillow because I'm not sleeping well or my husband's snoring or I'm snoring or get a new mattress because this one says it's going to give me, a, you know, the best night's sleep ever and you just go, hang on a minute. We don't just walk into Sports Direct and get some trainers for the whole Olympic squad and go, you're all going to be okay. There is a thought process that goes into, you know, there's two of us sleeping in here, so maybe we could do it like that. So people get very surprised that a lot of my clients do not sleep on extreme fancy products that cost a hell of a lot of money, you know, because you can't, you know, particularly in elite sport, you can't make number six the environment, number seven the products that they have in their homes, and then when they're in Beijing, they haven't got any of that. So as coaches, we're always trying, well, we'll only introduce things 
that we can replicate wherever they are. We don't want to introduce things that we can't. So how does the athlete sleep in Beijing in those temperatures inside a bubble being tested every minute where two years ago they were in some fancy home in Cheshire or South London with fancy mattresses, aircon, blackout blinds, you name it, smells, whatever, da 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 It's just creating something that just doesn't work. So that's what the 7K SRIs is, is to get you a journey to the point where you can actually sleep anywhere, anytime on anything and survive and optimize your recovery. You're not reliant on anything else. Even if that's a little comfort blanket that you grew up with, and I can tell you now there's quite a lot of my athletes who have it in their bag, you know, because that's their little touch point of going into a sleep state that creates calm, that creates a presence, and it's that little rabbit that's falling apart. That's what us humans are about, sound, colors, familiarization, smells, things, all those little comfort things reminding ourselves we're human, all our bodily functions, all those little things. And just once you get into that little place and you've got a little subconscious thing in the back of your pocket you walk around with every day, you stop worrying about sleep, so stop worrying about how you're going to sleep tonight or tomorrow or next Sunday. You just stop worrying about it. And strangely enough, it reveals itself more often than not. I'm really pleased that you've mentioned around the monetization of sleep products because it can be very similar in the nutritional fields where a magic pill is normally sold and advertised to help essentially solve all your health problems and your worries. So it is really important to understand that it is an accumulation of things. I actually remember I was invited by a brand and I won't name who they are, but it was to try a new mattress that they were selling, which cost £100,000. Now that's a lot of money for a good night's sleep. And it's really becoming a lucrative market. So from the seven stages which you've mentioned, I do find one really fascinating. And I think you said it was step number two, which is our chronotypes. Can you explain what it is? Because I'm sure many people listening have never even heard of a chronotype. And how do we find out which chronotype we are? Okay, it's two parts to that. One, my particular journey on this planet has reached 61 years now. So I was aware of my grandparents and my parents talking about owls and larks. They're birds, two different types of birds. A lark, you know, sings away in the morning, and the owl is tweeting at night. That's strange. What does it actually mean in the world of us as human beings? So, you know, I went along to the library and found out it's called a chronotype. It's a little genetic characteristic, okay? So as humans... If we're all sleeping outside, you know, hunter-gatherers, then this little pineal gland, as we mentioned before, is the sun comes along and starts to rise and starts to bring the light into the world. The plants love it. Everybody loves it. It triggers the start to a day. So there's a little thing that that pineal gland, if you're a morning type, right, a lark, that little pineal gland starts to react to that natural rhythm, starts to produce serotonin starts to tell the brain to unsuppress everything. So very, very quickly, the lark is up and going, right? Let's get going, right? The other genetic twist is that that pineal gland 
for the sake of argument for this conversation, <laughs> is that that pineal gland does not react to that light as quickly as another pineal gland inside another brain. So there's about a two-hour phase delay. So if you've got two people outside and one's got the chronotype morning, the other one's got the chronotype night, is that that serotonin delayed phase produced, right? So that's why you see morning types with the larks up at five or six o'clock in the morning, you know, bowel and bladder, eating, exercising, love the morning. The nighttimer is just not reacting to this process, right? They're not ready to because they're not producing that serotonin in principle. They think more like eight o'clock, nine o'clock, right? And it's not about your formative growth years, you know, when your brain's controlling, you know, you're sleeping 16 hours, 14 hours, 12 hours, and all that sort of stuff. It's not about student life. It's not about all of that sort of stuff. It literally does mean that whether you're outside or inside your bedroom, your pineal gland is reacting slowly. So what happens with that is that Nighttime chronotypes, if we're all outside, would have had a polyphasic approach to their recovery that would have been more in harmony with the 24-hour rolling process, so it wouldn't have had less effect, right? But in our world, PMers have to live in an AMers world. And that means my alarm goes off at 6.30 because I'm a morning type, and I'm up and hungry and ready to go. But also, the PMer has to come and join me because they do the same job as me, or they take kids to school, you know what I mean? So they have to force themselves out of sleep. So you immediately get this, I put my alarm on for 6.30, because that's my most consistent start to my day, right? I will wake in the final 90-minute cycle between 5 and 6.30, 5.30, 5.45, 6 o'clock, 10 passes, but I will always wake in that final cycle, switch the alarm off, because it's only there for security, because my brain's in control of this process, not me. I want to be able to start my day at 6.30. So I switch the alarm off, off I go. But the pm and I need to be at work at 8 o'clock, and it's 30 minutes away from work. The pm is still hitting the snooze button, you know, half an hour before they need to be at work. They're grabbing a protein bar. They're grabbing something en route. They're dragging themselves into the day, right? overstimulating, trying to do things. You know, when you get AMers and PMers who become friends, but they don't really know they're AMers and PMers, Sarah's asking me, who's an AMer, to be at the gym at five o'clock before we go to work. And I go, well, she's my friend. It's good for me to go and exercise. So I go along, but I'm a PMer. It's the last thing I'd want to be doing at five or six o'clock in the morning, unless I've done something in advance. So once you start to get knowledge that you can override it, you can camouflage it. You can ignore it. Right? But the most important thing is to have a relationship with it. Don't think you're an in-betweener. That's just camouflaging. That's just going, well, I've got a, you know, I've got a job where I have to get up early, and I also have to be up late at night, so I cam- you're camouflaging it. If you took yourself away, maybe like a holiday, if you took yourself away and you're in complete control, yeah, gone camping, whatever it is, you will know what your most natural start to the day is. And PMers do not choose 6 and 6.30. They choose 8 and 9 and 10. They also, because they're slightly out of sync with that natural rhythm, because they're being woken up 
sort of two or three hours before they've got that serotonin level right to help them start the day, they have this second hit. So once they get into the evening, they get this little second wind. So they're very comfortable to be very creative, very active, whatever type of disciplines they've got to do, you know, beyond 12 o'clock, one o'clock time in that area, they become active. So the chronotype thing has got a number of different layers to it. One, of course, I want to go to the gym with my friend, Sarah. It's good for me. And within our schedules, it needs to be, we're at the gym at six o'clock in the morning, right? Now, I don't want to stand there and go, well, I can't do that because I'm a nighttime chronotype. Can't we do it eight o'clock at night, Sarah, right? But what I do know is I need to start my day at least 60 minutes or 90 minutes prior to go into the gym at six, because I do need to get lots of light in, whether it's inside my house or outside, it might be dark. I do need to use, you mentioned lux and lumens. We call them seasonal affective disorder lamps, right? SAD lamps. They're producing 10,000 lux and they create what's outside rather than inside. So I do need to get exposed to that light. I do need to get time to get that serotonin going so that when I arrive at the gym, you know, I am helping my brain take advantage of that period rather than it could become a little bit negative. You know, it's like going to the gym in January and leaving it in March. We start things and they stop because we're trying to do things rather than having some thought about it. We just dive into it. So it's not about constructing your schedules, but it's certainly noticeable. I was in a, I don't know, crystal, crystal jewelry firm begins with an S. <laughs> in central London and I was working with one of the owners and everything else and we're looking at the office space and you know like a lot of places it's an oblong office there's a lots of desks by the windows and there's other desks on the other side of the room and as soon as we started having this conversation we just went we could do a little test right but at the end of the day it's just simple questions there you know what time would be your most natural wake time oh to me I actually really relate to this because I do feel that pressure of having to get up and be on it, feel productive, head to the gym early. I used to set my alarm for 6am, but my natural time definitely to wake up would be 7.30, 8am. Right. So the thing is, you can still do all of those wonderful active things, right? If you had complete control, right? Go to the gym, do this, do that, hydrate, make fresh breakfast, no, 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 no but it starts from 7.30, right? Because you're in control of what's going on. So it doesn't sort of go, you can't do this unless you get up early. It's just that if you choose to get up earlier because of your occupation and everything else, then at least you understand that in your world, if a more consistent, if a six o'clock makes more sense to do everything you want to do, but if you were in an ideal world, it could be 7.30. There's a 90-minute cycle, right? So in your little 90-minute planner, you would have the most natural start to your day would be 7.30, right, for the sake of argument. I like on the hour or half hour because it makes it easier to chop up in 90-minute cycles and also easy to think about, you know, 6 o'clock, 7.30, 9 o'clock, you know. You don't have to have some planner on your device or an alarm going off telling you it's every 90 minutes. You kind of get a really nice rhythm to it. So you would chop your day up into 90-minute cycles from 7.30. That would create the next go-to-sleep time at 6. 
back from that is 4.30, you know? So you can start to see how as your life revolves and, and adapts and changes and we have to have these things, you're just keeping it within the rhythm of that process. You'll create sleep times. could be 11 o'clock, 12.30, 2 a.m. every 90 minutes because you know that the first 90-minute cycle is moving you going down those stairs. The second 90-minute cycle is moving you into those areas where you can get that deep sleep. The third, fourth, and fifth cycle is moving towards wake because the sun's already coming back. And that's why a lot of people worry about waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning, feeling wide awake and can't go back to sleep. That's just the polyphasic thing kicking in because we would wake at that time and be active for a cycle and then go back. You know, so it's like, oh, my God, why is this happening? So because it's natural. You probably went through a couple of 90-minute cycles, say from 11 o'clock into 12.30, into 2 o'clock. You got some deep sleep. It's only 20% anyway. You got it either side of that period when it's mostly revealed. And then you were knocked out of sleep. And now you're awake. So what do you do? You know? So your tracker is going to alert you to the fact that you were awake. And you shouldn't be. <laughs> and it's sort of, yeah, 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 but it happens. So the thing, the chronotype thing comes into place is that we can look at, you know, five cycles a day over seven days is 35 cycles. It could be a combination of 28, 90-minute cycles back-to-back nocturnally combined with shorter 30-minute cycles, one every day late afternoon for an am or a pm And then we start to look at it like that. And then we start to think, well, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to achieve. So if I'm going to do that at that particular time, I need to do this before I do that. Or I need to do this after that. If I don't do that, I am constantly putting myself under pressure. And either within the short term or the longer term. I know you presented quite a number of questions to me. The short term or the longer term, the consequences of that approach will start to reveal itself to a greater or lesser degree because you're just not helping. If I'm going to go to the gym and it happens to be first thing in the morning, I know I'm going to push it too far because I'm a morning lark and I feel so great and so energized. Instead of doing a 60-minute session, you know, I push it, go faster, do a little bit extra, right? Instead of trying to have a managed approach to what's going on with your recovery and your approach. So strangely enough, we actually spend most of our time trying to create resilience, more consistent, sustainable levels of human recovery. That's mental and physical by trying to slow people down. And I hate to use that word, but, you know, coaches don't tell people what to do. They take them on a journey and suddenly they find themselves in that place. And I think that's what the whole sort of R90 technique and the seven KSRIs is you start off, what's circadian rhythms got to do with sleep, Nick? Don't worry about it. Let's just tap it in the browser. What's that chronotype? Oh, right. Yeah, that's what you mean. I'd be one of those. Yeah. Do you love breakfast? Not really. I like to have my first meal about 10 o'clock. Oh, I see. You know, and it's, uh, oh, and I, yeah, I love the nights because I'm so much more creative. 
It is important to understand that fitting into a formula may not be beneficial for everyone. It can be really freeing for one to understand how making a few changes to their daily routine can help optimise one's performance and personal life just through creating this understanding of what is important for their sleep cycle and not fitting into the societal formula. I think that sort of imaginary friend that we possibly all of us have, (laughs) but it's sort of you get to that particular place where, you know, the sun is going around our planet. It doesn't take much research to find out we are completely synchronized to that process. But we've invented things like electric lights. We've invented daylight saving time, which doesn't happen all over the world, which causes all chaos in the winter months for us all. And we've also invented technology. We've invented 24-7. We've ripped away every little opportunity for a bit of brain recovery because we've got devices that keep us active all the time. You know, So it wasn't that long ago in the mid-90s that I'd be standing there waiting for a taxi or a train and all I could do is people watch or read a book, you know, or make some notes. It's not just about texting your friend. It's broadened itself right out. It's not to look back, but it's certainly, like I said at the start of the conversation, it's, uh, you know, the tracking, the trillion-dollar black hole. I mean, you tap mattress or sleep or problems or... How do I do this? Or how do, and you just get bombarded with every algorithm going on the planet. So we know that at the end of our fingertips, we've got the most exciting things in front of us. But they are also scary. And no generation really knows the full impact of all of this. So we know it's really exciting. But that's the problem is I see an ever-increasing addictive behavior going on you know, below the iceberg tip, as you would call it. So even when you go into the corporate world, the business world, the sports world or everything else, is people in the background are just, you know, they're not getting a good night's sleep. They're not recovering. They might get a bit worried about it and stuff like that. And they tap something in. And before you know where you are, sleeping tablets are arriving in a brown box or melatonin supplements or devices or apps or all sorts of weird things that suddenly start arriving on your doorstep and you start using them, trying to, you know, deep dive into trying to put something right. So we should be the healthiest, most knowledged human population that's ever walked this planet, surely. Surely. Why is that not the case? We've got some really healthy people. We've got people pushing the boundaries of human performance beyond belief. But in general terms, pre-COVID, In general terms, whether we're just talking about it more, so we're more aware of it. But you can certainly say that we're not the healthiest, maybe not from a a mental perspective. But there's some crazy stuff been going on, continues to go on even today, which shows that, you know, as human beings, we really need to take a step back and we need to understand that we're just brains and bodily functions. And we've got to be very careful of how we push the boundaries of all sorts of things in a sort of recovery-deprived state, because that can be very dangerous. Decision-making, alertness, mood, motivation, all of these factors are all generating around this area. So I like to think that I have got a, a nice relationship with my imaginary friend, my brain, 
And my brain says, consistent start to the day. I really love that, Nick, because it's like the sun rising. Right, so we'll have a consistent start to the day. Yeah, and by the way, you're an AMer, so let's have a good start to the day, but let's balance it because we don't want to push it too far in the morning and crash in the afternoon because we've got things to do. Cool. What's really going to help you more than anything else? Consistent start to the day, Nick, and loads of light. I mean, I need big time light, right? Because then I'll unsuppress everything. You'll get rid of all the waste in your bowels. Bladder's easy. We'll do some mental challenges. I'll unsuppress you, make you the best person possible, and you'll be walking around, you know, fueling off the good stuff that you've had for breakfast. Healthy, balanced approach. Give me little CRPs every 90 minutes, just a couple of minutes. Only fill that hydration bottle up halfway, so you just have to go to the kitchen and fill it up half again just to create breaks, just to create little things. And then a little 30-minute period in the afternoon for me and you. If I want to put you to sleep, I will. I'll micro-sleep you. You don't have to worry about me, Nick, because I can put you to sleep anywhere. So if I want to put you to sleep, then I will. You just create the space. Just have some vacant mind space. Don't even try and do anything. That's just us. If we do that, we've got some rhythm to our 24 hours. Now we take the pressure off phase three, which is the evening. So we don't have to rush around all night trying to eat the right things, go to the gym, got to do this, get the emails out. Let's take the pressure off that phase three, because actually, if we're allocating four 90-minute cycles tonight, which is six hours, we'll go all the way through those six hours with no awakenings, no disturbances. I'll take you to the bottom of the stairs. We'll get that 20%, and we'll wake up and crack on again. So if we do this together, right, then I will look after you. Right? If you choose to ignore your chronotype, if you choose to start your day at different times, if you choose not to have a balanced approach to eating and hydrating, if you choose not to give me time to recover, then when you do try to make me do this eight-hour thing in your head, it ain't going to happen. And longer term, I'm afraid, I'm constantly adapting, so I'm going to make changes to how we work, and that's not going to be good. So, happy friend on your shoulder, called your brain. I think we do need to listen to it, and sometimes we can try and block these signals of exhaustion and think that we need to slow down. And hopefully this conversation has highlighted that we need to acknowledge it and work with it. Something I found really interesting from this podcast is that we need to work more with a routine throughout our day. Many of us focus on the wind down period before bed, such as the meditation and the switching off from our digital devices. And yes, that is really important. But fundamentally, what you've mentioned here is it's also the post work, which can make a real impact. We've all heard that saying, getting out on the right side of the bed. And essentially, that is really important to kind of start that work from the moment you wake up to really help optimize our sleep cycle. It's not taking that stuff into the day. It's sort of, so, I slept. Was it good? Was it bad? How many? I don't care, right? I did what I did. That's what I got. So start the day again, you know, and put these things. Because if I don't keep doing those things, it's just going to get worse. So at least we've got these opportunities. So some days your brain will go, hey, Sarah, you know that little 30-minute polyphasic slot we have, one of our little cycles late afternoon because we're morning chronotype." and it becomes the most important 30 minutes of your day. 
is I'm just going to let you know that I'm probably going to put you asleep, okay? And you go, okay, then I'll sit on the sofa, right? And I'll put the headphones on. I could do it in the gym, sat in the changing room or in the steam room. Whatever. You just know that you're going to drift, right? And then sometimes you know you're not, but you still do it. It's been a fascinating and overwhelming journey for me. And the book's out in like eight, 17 languages now around the world. And they're still being published, which is quite crazy. Anybody who reads it sort of goes, I thought I knew all of that anyway, because it's one of those books. Yes, so many times we disassociate our bodies from our minds, as opposed to telling our minds that our bodies really need a rest. It is. And I think the sort of, obviously we can jump into this stuff too quickly. It's positive, but we want to be careful how quickly we just dive into this health pillar that's been ignored. I think the challenge for the next generation is to make it the first health pillar. This is what we do in sport is it's recovery, right? It's human recovery. This is not wasting time. This is a really valuable tool. And if you make it the first pillar to try and optimize your recovery and take it not as serious as everything else, but, you know, at least raise your knowledge for heaven's sake, is that your hydration plan will benefit. Your nutritional plan will benefit. Your exercise will benefit. Your relationships with others will benefit. Your productivity will benefit. If it's at the end of those health pillars, that's why we identify top elite performers in whatever sport it is, is because there's a bunch of elite performers, but the one that hops out, the one that just hops out from that elite performance group is the one that puts their recovery at the front of everything else because otherwise everything else gets diminished. So you always try to say to the next generation, the key to our success, wherever you come from, whatever you're thinking the future holds for us, your key to this is being able to help your brain and yourself recover using these very simple techniques and not losing sight of that. that that's your key to absolutely everything that's going to go on in your life. Hopefully this podcast has been really helpful and started that education, even though it's been a really long one. But hopefully it's left people wondering, what is my chronotype and how much light am I getting? And do I start my day with a good routine? I'll try and pop this onto the show notes, but to help people continue their journey, can you tell everyone where they can find you? My personal website is sportsleepcoach.com. Um, you put Nick Little Hales in a browser, put Sport Sleep Coach in a browser and you'll find us. We've got lots of blogs, videos, all sorts of stuff, free content. The book is available in an audible version and also a quick read. But Amazon, you know, Google Play, all that sort of stuff, audible.com, secondhand versions for a few quid, all that sort of stuff. And we've got coaching services, you know, because I coach people and all sorts of stuff in all sorts of areas and things like that. But, you know, we're always dropping things onto Instagram through LinkedIn, through Twitter and Facebook and things like that. I'm a little bit more selective about content posting, you know. So I, if there's something worth saying or sharing, then I will. But I'm, I'm not in a quest to get really excited about how many people are following me every minute of the day and looking for advertising money because of it. So I tend to post when I've got something to say. Well, hopefully you'll post this podcast. Oh, absolutely. Without question. 
But I, I think that's the great thing about it, Sarah, from your point of view, because I know you know you're not in my generation, but it's most of the people I'm working with, the younger generation, it's not a challenge, but maybe my book and various other things that have been going on creates an awareness that there's your job is to redefine it for all of your listeners, for everybody to get involved and go, that makes so much sense. We could do it like this. We could we can change our working practices. We could shift that around here or we could do that here or we could change that or we could stop telling our kids to do their homework at the same time every night when one of them is a nighttime chronotype and Billy isn't, you know? And why can't I be an author and write brilliant stuff at 12 o'clock at night? Why is somebody shouting at me for being awake at 12 o'clock when it actually is the best part of my day? I've got a technique that helps me do this. So stop shouting at me. So it's kind of like, come on, let's all redefine this process within the parameters of knowledge and good facts, not make it up. But let's go and redefine it because we definitely need to. Absolutely. And we really try to thrive in this in the podcast to bring the facts. And hopefully people can see from the last hour and a half, it has been full of them. So many amazing nuggets of information around sleep. Thank you, Nick. And it is true. I am a real believer that sleep is the cornerstone to our health. And we really do need to be taking care of it more. Thank you for sharing all of it today. And I'll be sure to share the links to your website and the book in our show notes for everyone. Thank you, Nick, for coming on. That's brilliant. Thanks very much, Sarah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. If you did enjoy it, please do share and leave us a five-star rating. It means an immense amount to know that you are enjoying this podcast. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.